Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello, I'm Eric Eastep. And I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back, listeners. Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Much better than last week. Yes. I'm happy to report I don't have near the fear of uh, coughing spree like I experienced during recording last week. Well, last week we interviewed uh, Dylan Pommen, and you mainly stayed muted. Oh, was that last week? <laughs> yeah. Also, it was two weeks ago that I, yeah. two weeks ago, I just about... Yeah, I just about had a conniption. Hopefully the listeners didn't really hear anything, and it was in my in my supreme editing capabilities. Those are not really existing. Well, I didn't get anybody giving me medicine or, you know, tips on how to, you know, stay healthy <laughs> or anything. So you must have done a good job. Thank you. Nice. Well, we're getting towards the end of the year. What, and maybe this is a very nerdy question, but do you have a reading goal, and are you are you getting close to accomplishing your reading goal? Um, I set a uh, like number of books to read on Goodreads. I know that you did because you're a logophage. <laughs> but I am <laughs> what, not going to make does that mine. mean? <laughs> People <laughs> might think you just cussed at me or something. <laughs> uh, a logophage means that he devours words or eats books mm. or um, loves books. And so I'm no logophage, but... Um, I think you're a logophage. I might be, but I don't claim to be one. Okay. <laughs> you. <laughs> that has to be something I, that other I, someone I'm, else labels you. Well, with. yes, I'm. I'm podcasting with you, so I'm no logophage. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I did set a goal, and I'm not going to make it. I'm just going to say I don't. I don't even know. Um, I haven't even recorded all the ones that I've read. So you might. I'm, you might be ahead of the. I'm not ahead. I'm not ahead, but I'm not as behind as I think I am, I, I suspect. But I'm not going to make it just because um, actually my wife begged for mercy. She, <laughs> You don't have to. Just because you have a goal doesn't mean you have to. So I've, uh, I've uh, taken my foot off the gas pedal a little bit and I'm trying to read a little bit, but not as much. This is definitely the time of year. It happens every year because I'll be a little bit behind. And I always start looking for a bunch of short books. So people start, oh, have you read this book? Was it short? Like, uh, if I can get it done really quickly, I'd love to get a new book. Well, if, if I'm honest, it's the time of year where I reread books. Oh. And there's a couple that are wonderful that are really, really short. Um, the Life of God and the Soul of Man is one mm. of them. It's about 80 pages. And then uh, the even if you're more in a pinch, uh, Leadership as an Art by Max Dupree. Mm. Uh, it's not only short, but there's like lots of space between the lines. Nice. And, um, and it's really, really good too. So you read those every year? That's a, no, it's just when I panic. <laughs> <laughs> and the first one, uh, is by Henry Skugel, right? Yes. And it's old. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. It's good. And it's not that easy of a read cause it is, it's written in 1700. So mm -hmm. it's got old language, but it's yeah, worthwhile nonetheless. It's really worthwhile. But not on topic of what we're talking about well, today. We're, we're going to talk about, about a book, right? That you've you've been reading. So that's well, yes. I'm no biblio. I'm no. I'm no logophage. But uh, <laughs> I'm just going to 
throw but that I, as many times. But I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I am reading uh, the Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark Knoll. I'm no logophage, but <laughs> that's right. But I'm reading the nerdiest of books, uh, and it is it is a kind of a weird book actually that you would never just pick this up for light reading. That's that's very true. I wouldn't think, but. I, I'm I'm finding that I keep two. Since we're talking about this, forget about it. I keep two. I keep two book lists: one for a podcast and one for just general interest. And my and, and I recommend this to readers. I, I keep Amazon, these Amazon list, and I look. Do you every, keep them public so if people want to buy you books? No, no, no. Okay, I don't these do are private that. lists. These are my lists, and I like people's workflows. So it's always interesting. But I go me. back and um, you know at least once a week, check and see if any of them are on sale. Mm-hmm. And so I will pick up books that are $27 books, I, like I did this morning for 99 cents. Nice. And this is why you listen, folks. That's right. That, this is you actually. You logophages. <laughs> in case you find yourself being a logophage, you might want to do this trick. But anyway, find ones you like. Then if they go on sale, then you pick them up for really, really cheap. So mm. that's, that's I, this one I think I paid full price for mm. because it was right down the, in the sweet spot of what we want to do here. And I, uh, one of the first things when we started trying to understand where is the church and what is the church, you know, why is the church so goofed up and having such a hard time engaging the political arena when we first started this podcast, one of the very first things we did was to look back in time and talk about history Mm -hmm. because we, um, we arrived here from someplace and we got where we are because of where we were. And that was, that was so helpful to me at the very beginning that I have, I mean, I've read three or four um, or maybe more, but I'm no logophage. People going to turn this off, <laughs> these knuckleheads. <laughs> they, they might actually use the word themselves. Yeah, we're going to force them to think about it. <clears throat> anyway, uh, on the on the revolution and the causes and is you know America a Christian nation that kind of book, and then this is uh, my second or third book I think on the Civil War in particular, and I've got another in the queue, uh, but um, particularly how does the Civil War um, shape theology or how does theology shape the Civil War? How does uh, you know, where with regard to, say, the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, and, you know, how did those religious events affect the mm-hmm. political environment? Because I think those, all those things sort of uh, affect how the church today engages politics because, you know, we'll learn from how they did it before. Mm. So anyway, all that to say, I picked up this book by Mark Knoll on the Civil Wars of Theological Crisis. And... Um, I will say that it wasn't exactly what I expected, but it was it was really quite interesting. And um, on page one, he says, in the uncertain days of late 1860 and early 1861, the pulpits of the United States were transformed into instruments of political theology. And right there is a reason for us to pay attention. I think because that um, is that has happened in other times that has happened recently, mm-hmm. and those are things we need to pay attention to. I I will say one other thing that 
Um, this is completely off topic. Not completely. But a sentence like that stresses me out, that the pulpits became instruments of political theology is a stressful sentence for me to read mm. because that's not really what the pulpits ought to be doing. Mm. And we watched the other night, we watched uh, The Crown. We're maybe just getting started. With, like season one? Yeah, way back. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so we're way back. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm slow to the game. Um, I'm no, uh, what, video phage, video I guess. Video phage, yeah. Uh, but anyway, that it was the... Um, it was when, well, what did they call it? When the crown was placed on her head. What? Coronation. Coronation. It was a coronation. And, um, and I found myself getting stressed watching that because mm. the archbishop came and said, like um, the priests of old, like the kings of old, like Solomon. Mm. And I just was realizing what is happening here is this layering of religion and politics or church and state. And church and state yeah. in a way that is just so undiscerning. Mm. In other words, so unnuanced. Like you are you are in the place of Solomon. You are in the place of those priests and those kings. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's how it was viewed, you know, by the queen and by all of the people involved there. And I found myself like, whew, having to take a little breather because it was really stressful. And, and that's what he's saying is happening here um, in the pulpits of the United States during and preceding the Civil War. So anyway, that's, that's why I digressed on that. Mm. But I think we have to be discerning about what is the place of the church, what is the place of the government. So um, the other thing that was um, interesting as I as I began to read about the Civil War is how central the church was in the life of um, the in the life of the country. And in for instance, here here are a few things. Um, the one one uh, historian said that um, during the mid 1850s, so the decade before uh, the Civil War, over 10 million Americans, or about 40 percent of the total population, appear at that time to have been in close sympathy with evangelical Christianity. This was the largest and most formidable subculture in American society. So, 40 percent, not just religious, but 40 percent of mm. you know Protestant evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity. Uh, that is a big number. Um, there were, uh, in 1860, he said about 4.7 million American men voted in the decisive presidential election. Uh, you do know who was elected then. Abraham Lincoln. There you go. Yes. Uh, during that same year, at least three times, maybe even four times that many men, women, and children were regularly in church on a given Sunday. So mm. four times the number of people who voted in the presidential election. Mm. Striking. There, in 1860, there were about as many Methodist clergy as U.S. postal workers. Today, that ratio is um, nine postal workers to every one Methodist clergy, for what it's worth. Um, 
The number that uh, may say more about the Methodist or denomination than it does the Postal Service. It probably says bo- something <laughs> so about both. Both, yes. Yeah, and uh, but I'm but I'm, I'm trying to give some perspective that religion was an enormous mm-hmm. issue in the Civil War. There were um, about oh, let's see what did he say here. The number of U.S. military personnel. Um, prior to mobilization for the Civil War, was about half the number of the clergymen. Mm. In other words, there were two clergymen for every person engaged in the military, Mm. which, again, if you think about that, it's just striking. In 1850, the total value of all church property in the country was pegged by the census at over 87 million, and in 1860 at 169 million. Of all American industries, only the railroads enjoyed greater capitalization. In other words, Capital investment. The, I mean, the industries in America were railroads mm. and church. That's the, those are the two biggest industries. Um, there were, in the 1860s, 35 churches for every banking facility. That's to, significant. Today there are four churches for each banking facility. If so, you would have asked me if there are more churches than banks, in, even now... I don't know that I would have said churches. Yeah, I don't think I would have either. But, but some of it is, it's just, I mean, it's just staggering the, the influence mm. that the church w- had then. And I think, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, we need to be wise because the good old days, we talked about this at the very mm. beginning, right. was when the church had influence, right? And the church had all of, you know, big numbers and all of these kinds of things. And what came out of that was a civil war. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of interesting. Then he goes on in, this, in the introduction, really, to say that there was not a ton of uh, theology done about the war. It, the, he said that the United States came out of the war virtually the same theologically as it went into the war. Hmm. And, um, and I love I love this um, this statement. They said we can surmise the lack of attention to theological profundity in the Civil War is almost certainly related to the fact that there was simply existed so little theological profundity. Hmm. In other words, nobody in that time was doing profound theology. Uh, so, uh, and and I think the reason, and he, I I think probably. Um, the author would suggest that this was a result of the Great Awakening and a result of the fact that what the Great Awakening did was it democratized mm. religion. It democratized, and more so even than the first Great Awakening, I think. It democratized the interpretation of the Bible. So what, um, and... and uh, so basically, uh, I, I can read the Bible for myself, and I am in a, an authority, uh, hermeneutical authority in interpretation. Is that what you're yes, saying? Yes, and you should be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, 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 that is the case. That, I mean, that's the way they would have said that is mm-hmm. the case. And that is the desired end. And what that meant is that the institutions of the church, the longstanding denominations and things, had less sway. And mm. so the um, certainly Catholicism was not, not there. That's, it. that's an issue, actually, in the book. But um, other denominations, you were not getting this generational cascade of theology. Mm. You were getting people showing up 
open their Bible, pointing to a proof text, saying, this is mm -hmm. what it says. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you this. Right. And so there was this democratic uh, kind of uh, self-authority mm -hmm. in reading the Bible that I think I think needs to warn us. This is part of what, why I sure. want to talk about this book, is because I think this is a, it was a big warning to me that uh, I get all you know fired up about what I discover in the scriptures or what I think it means or what it means to me. Right. That what it means to me. What, and, what does this mean to you? Question is classic. And this let I mean this got us into trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, in part because, uh, as a and this was a result of the Great Awakening, which really drove individual individual decisions for Christ. Mm -hmm. Basically, put people on the anxious bench and mm -hmm. you know, made you know, um, laid it on heavy until they raised their hand or came forward or uh, confessed their sins or whatever. And um, the, the, the Great Awakening really democratized it, but what that did then, instead of having this generational sort of institutional stream of interpretation, you ended up with this individualistic interpretation of the Bible that then was heavily influenced not by this longstanding um, history or tradition, but by the people you are around, mm. the tribes with which you associate, namely the North or the South. Right. And the pro-slavery or the abolitionists would, would I mean, they were reading their Bibles. Mm -hmm. They were reading the same Bibles. And how you came out, out on it depended in part on where you lived. It depended in, in large measure on where you lived. It, lived in, it depended in large measure on uh, who you listened to in the contemporary environment mm -hmm. uh, rather than going back to the deep roots of Christianity or mm -hmm. to, even to Christ himself. But it was really, that was super interesting to me and a big warning to us because, I mean, who, who was the, I mean, the, I suppose the Baptists were as much a beneficiary of the Great Awakening as anybody. And uh, the Methodists and the Baptists were. And so it came out with, sort of our own, in, we came out of there, our, mm. our heritage came out with our own individualistic understandings of the scripture, understandings of what it means, and our, our own belief that, yes, in fact, we can, and we can. We can read the Bible for ourselves, no mm. doubt about that. But we have to be humble in the way that we Well, it doesn't come. It. it doesn't come without pitfalls either. Or rest, certainly or risk, risks. Definitely yes. risk, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we ran into those risks when we came to the Civil War. So. Mm -hmm. Um, because the interpretation of the Bible. So the, the first crisis really is the crisis of the Bible uh, and biblical interpretation. Uh, interpretation, believe it or not, was driven by economic motives. No. I know that would be a shocker to you because you've never seen that happen before, right? We've never, <laughs> I mean, this happens all the time. My own self-interest guides my interpretation of my whole world, mm -hmm. including my Bible reading. Mm -hmm. And so that is that was an issue, and, and you can certainly guess how that affected the Bible interpretation in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, that strain was largely pro-slavery because, uh, and, and they would make a case that, that the Lord approved of slavery. It wasn't just, you know, we're not going to talk about the Bible. It was, no, the Bible approves of slavery. And, and, and um, 
I think that he probably would have even gone so far as to say that it should be maintained mm. for the well-being of mankind, basically. Right, not just, a, not just a necessary evil, but a positive good. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. I mean, probably word for word even. So, Which uh, I, I find interesting. I've, I've read through a fair amount of history from beginning to end of, of, of America in general, and slavery what, during the Revolution time was described as necessary evil, and it shifted once you get to the Civil War, it shifts to, no, th- this is not just necessary evil that we want to hush-hush not talk about. This is a positive good, and it would be detrimental to us to get rid of this thing, mm-hmm. which is clearly a just a, a broken way of looking at oh, the world. And, I mean, it just churns your stomach to mm-hmm. think about how that can happen in such a major issue, but it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. It's happening right now. That's the thing. It's happening right now. And depending on who you listen to and where you are on the political spectrum, and mm-hmm. you're being influenced all by those things as much as you are by deep and rich and historical uh, theological interpretation. So that that's, I think that's really important to acknowledge, and that's one of the reasons I want to talk about it on uh, the podcast, is that the, the, there's a crisis of biblical interpretation in the Civil War. So more to the point of that, um, there, they would read the Bible, and there would be two positions. Mm. More, I mean, and some some moderate moderating position, but there's a pro-slavery position, and there's an abolitionist position. In other words, there there are people who read the Bible and said the Bible supports and encourages slavery. Can you think of any Bible verses that might be spun that direction? Well, you could spin the whole. Uh, whole letter to Philemon. That, that's a key, yeah. And then he Ephesians. Goes, right, he goes back to his master, just so mm-hmm. everyone, uh, uh, Paul sends Philemon back to his master. In other words, mm-hmm. he doesn't undermine slavery. He sends the slave back to his master. And they said, oh, that definitely supports slavery. Mm-hmm. And then your Ephesians 1 mm-hmm. is right, and it's Ephesians, what is it, first part of uh, 6, uh, slaves obey your masters. And you know, obey your earthly. Uh, ESV says, "Bond servants obey your ma- earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ." And there are other passages mm-hmm. that in the New Testament that say that. And so there's this quick assumption that the um, the Bible supports and promotes slavery. Now, the interesting thing about this, and this is the other reason I want to talk about this Bible interpretation thing, because it, this was very stressful for me still is stressful to talk about, um, <laughs> is that the pro-slavery element dealt with specific texts, mm. like here's Philemon, here's Ephesians, here's, mm-hmm. um, well, so there are other ones, I don't, I'm not, not coming to mind right now, but they dealt with specific texts about uh, why the Lord would, would uh, support slavery or why God felt it, slavery was okay. But specific text, which I would almost always argue is better than generalities. Mm. I mean, nothing frustrates me more than somebody uh, somebody say, well, it says somewhere in the Bible that blah, 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 blah. <laughs> it's like, really? Can you not do any better than that? Give me something to go on. Right. Um, but and, and the pro-slavery element did deal with specific texts and found those specific texts to be supportive of slavery. On the other hand, though, and this, this is where his critique about the profound theology comes in, I think. The abolitionists didn't deal so much with specific texts. 
where God can, would condemn slavery. Mm. They found those maybe even hard to find, but they dealt with biblical generalities, namely that, it, that slavery as practiced in um, the South uh, contradicted uh, the spirit of the Bible, mm-hmm. that kind of language. Okay, they didn't do a robust exposition, I don't think of, some, somebody probably did, of uh, but the, the general interpretation around was more shallow. Is that what you're saying? Well, shallow and just general. The general right. spirit of the Bible, the spirit of Christ, uh, would be against slavery. And, you know, I mean, I think you can, you can build a textual explanation for that without any question. So mm-hmm. please don't misunderstand me to, to be um, yeah, on the other side because it's specific. I mean, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 would be a really specific text you could oh, go yeah. to. Anyway, that was um, all that to say, <laughs> how you interpret the Bible matters. Mm-hmm. And how you come to the decisions about what the Bible means matters. And I, it's just hard for me to imagine the church being so ever-present and everyone really having to come to grips with, uh, let's say, four times as many people as voted in the presidential election having to come to grips with what does the Bible teach about slavery on one side or the other. To me, that's that's overwhelming, in the, especially in regard to interpreting the Bible and coming with two different answers. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it's just hard for me to imagine that that happened that way, but it did, and the same thing presents itself for us. And if, if we're not careful about how we understand the Bible and how we understand the, the circumstances around our interpretation of the Bible and then the, and the causes and the influences of our I, other ideas— we're, we're going to do the same kind of thing. Mm. And so it just was a big caution to me to, to realize the, we have to do better than the Bible says. Right. The Bible says. And you can say the Bible says, frankly, in the 1860s, they were saying the Bible says slavery mm. is good. Other people were saying the Bible says slavery must go. They both said the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really... <clears throat> well, Lincoln references oh, that... Uh, they they pray they said that they prayed to the same God and basically um, describing both sides of the Civil War in his second inaugural yeah and like what what are we supposed to do with this yeah we're, we're gonna we're both, we'll come to yeah. we'll come to that a little bit later um, because that has to do with a different crisis there's a crisis mm-hmm. of a biblical interpretation um, there are, I, basically I have three crises that he presents a lot of in the book sorry yeah. But, well, it, but as far as what's, what's the takeaway here, so we've described two different sides. They're both appealing to the Bible, which we'd say we, we like appealing to the Bible. That's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is the takeaway? Is, is it, yeah, you tell me. Well, yeah, the takeaway is to um, be careful and thoughtful in your exposition of mm-hmm. what is in the Bible and what the Bible means by what it says. Mm-hmm. And so do good work on your uh, interpretation like, what does the context say? What is, it, what is the context into which it was written? Mm-hmm. How is that the same? How is that different? See, that, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that they right. missed here was how is the context different in the first century than it is, was in um, the 19th century. Right. Are, these, are these words even referring to the same thing in our context? Right. Yeah. And so th- that's one thing. I think the other thing is be humble. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and don't be overly individualistic in your interpretation. So those would be mm. my takeaways. Yeah. Be careful in your, in your work and then be humble and don't be individualistic. So yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thanks for asking about that. The second crisis though, and that kind of leads to that is a, a, slif- a, a crisis over slavery versus race. See, they were not very careful about, uh, at least certainly pro-slavery people weren't, about how um, first century slavery was different than what was practiced in America. Mm. Um, There were people who were conquered and then put into slavery and then, um, but not on the basis of race, Mm -hmm. not on the basis of, you know, anything other than losing the war. And then they were... uh, you know, often treated differently. In fact, the the Bible um, spoke into those situations. They treat them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, the the defense of slavery, you know, as um, for what it was in the Civil War, was dependent on the the belief of the inferiority of the Negro race. Mm. I mean, it's just almost all you can do to read some of the things people said and how important it was that there was this, um, you know, uh, inferior race or subhuman race. I mean, talked about it in awful, awful ways. Mm-hmm. And um, which to go back to Genesis one, you basically have to ignore Genesis one, uh, Gen- 26 and 27. Yeah, and assume it doesn't fit. Yeah. Assume it somehow. There's a, there's a subset of, there's of humanity a that does not. Yeah fit under the image of God piece. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, that was what they claimed would be allowed. And that was one of the ways that several people argued against slavery was, look here, no, they're not inferior in this mm-hmm. way, in this way, in this way, in this way. But it was just so widespread. In fact, it was so widespread that when, um, the, even in the North, amongst abolitionists, they were against slavery, but were not ready to treat um, the Negroes equal mm. when uh, the Civil War is over, mm. which is stunning. And that's how deep this kind of belief went, mm. even from those who thought slavery was wrong. Mm. And so they really did miss it in the, the, the classic, um, just the, the classic, I don't know, trope, I suppose, it's not an in interpretation, it's just a made-up thing, was the curse of Canaan, that somehow that was a mark of God's judgment and therefore justified American slavery. And it's just, it's just hard. Yeah, definitely a made-up thing. It's just heartbreaking. You know, it's just heartbreaking that that, that, that was done in the name of the Bible. That's a thing that I, that's mm-hmm. why this is such an important thing for, for me, is this is done in the name of the Bible that um, you know, people didn't get that there was a difference between slavery in the first century and race-based chattel slavery in America, uh, that somehow slaves were property. It just, those, those, they're very different things, and that was missed in the discussion. And then um, it was only in America that slavery was based on the color of one's skin. I mean, you go to the Bible slavery mm-hmm. and... People were conquered and mixed up all over the place, and th- there were all kinds of 
colors of people on all kinds of socioeconomic spectrums throughout mm -hmm. the Middle East. So anyway, there was this, um, slavery was one issue, race was another issue. And the, um, and I mean, we've even seen it, you know, in recently that slavery may be over, but the problems with race are not mm. because they're two different issues. And it'd be easy to go back and maybe roll those together, but the the slavery was dependent on the racism, mm -hmm. and the slavery went away, but the racism didn't. Mm. And so there was a, there was that kind of crisis, and and that was noticed more. This is the other thing, interesting thing the book does. It doesn't make for doesn't make for better reading, but it it was a good case. He makes a case that the the Christians outside of America saw this much more clearly than people in America saw it. Mm. So what he does is he takes, takes, you know, Protestant and Catholic commentary from Europe and from Canada mm -hmm. about what's going on in America. And they're able to see the, you know, the biblical interpretation issues. They're able to see the, the race, you know, uh, in relation to slavery in a way that the Americans can't see it. That's interesting. And they're basically able to point out the blind spots right. that and America had because of their uh, ingrained poor interpretation of Scripture. And economic interests mm -hmm. and other things, mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, if there's a takeaway here, it's simply, again, to be humble and realize you don't, you know, you're so enmeshed in the situation you're in. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I hope it's not as evil as... Uh, slavery was, but it's you're in that situation, mm -hmm. and you need to recognize you don't see everything about it because you're in it. Right, and so that's the uh, that's one of the things that I thought was really interesting as he talked about how do how do people use the Bible with regard to slavery and with regard to race. So that was the second crisis. The third crisis <laughs> is also stressful. Um, and that is what he called like a fun book. Just lots oh, of stress. It, 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 well, I mean, it's just it's just it's stressful for me because as as a pastor, I do see people doing these things now mm. without realizing they're doing the same thing that was the worst of the worst right. in American history and probably you know uh, arguably in church history too. Mm. And so that's what stresses me out about it. And, and here's the third one. It's a, what he calls a crisis of providence or crisis over providence. And by providence, he means how God works in the world. And so um, both the, the North and the South, uh, and I think he would maintain somewhat equally, uh, we're, we're trying to parse how God was working in the conflict. In other words, which side uh, had God's favor? Mm. Was God for slavery or against slavery? It goes back to the interpretation. Was God uh, for the North or for the South? And they were trying, they were preoccupied with what they saw God doing. And... Um, like in a signs of the times type thing? Like... Did we win this battle? Did we lose this battle? Well, it was as immediate as every single battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they would lose a battle and sure that God's dark providence was mm -hmm. over them and um, or they would win a battle and sure that the, the, the light of providence was shining upon them and that God would certainly bring resolution to this conflict soon. 
And so they were continually trying to read the circumstances to determine whether God was happy or not. Now, that's I think that's really interesting. Good thing that doesn't happen anymore. That's oh, great. good thing that that that's the <laughs> only time that's ever happened. But the, uh, I, I think it's very easy to overread mm-hmm. providence. Now, that what I'm talking about now is different from what they were doing. They were reading, uh, they were reading the signs in the in in the nation. You know, might even say in the news about each battle and what God was. Right. And, and trust me, when when they heard that. By Sunday, it was in the pulpits. Mm-hmm. God is this way. God is doing this. God is against us. God is for us. God gave us victory. God, God did I mean, this at Antietam or did this at Gettysburg. or and Yes, and, and God is for us. Um, or God is judging us. Or God, and, and they're determining um, you know, God's attitude toward, now that, that sounds awful, I suppose, in regard to such a big situation as a civil war, mm-hmm. but God's attitude toward slavery, toward justice, toward what they're doing, based on how things were going, mm. and yes, people do this all the time now. We look for everything to determine whether we're in God God's, God's graces or whether He's going to um, uh, make our lives better or worse, or be pleased with us or not, mm-hmm. and it just. I mean, if there ever was a warning for Christians, it would be the Civil War. Mm. And when you mentioned the Second Inaugural, yes, both sides understood God to be engaged on their side of the conflict and providentially steering mm-hmm. events um, so that they would you know, understand or have the right kind of, um, what do I want to say, uh, result. Mm. And it just... It's just gut-wrenching to see people do that when it just really wasn't that clear. Mm. And so my, you know, and and be very much like someone saying, and I'm sure this has never been said, but we are being, America is being judged by God because he let Joe Biden become president. Or some variation that there were others who said. Or Donald Trump. Or Donald Trump. Yeah. Or Barack Obama. Or mm-hmm. President Clinton, or you I mean you basically every president represents this sentence mm-hmm. because there are two sides trying right. to read what God's doing in the mm-hmm. world, and I'm just saying that might not work that way. Well, this is this is fascinating. It, it's a it's an example to be aware of for sure, but not just because it's this distant thing that oh we happen to match proclivities. That mm-hmm. that's not what's going on here. This is actually upstream in our timeline, um, the influences here are the influences on us in different ways, mm-hmm. but that whether it's that uh, democratic bent towards interpretation and uh, individual emphasis, that's not just something we have in common. That's something um, that's in our ancestry. Like that's that's an American religion inheritance. Right. We're wired. American Christianity is wired to do mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this is just our quote-unquote, forefathers doing it before us, and yeah. we've, we've learned it in the same stream. But, I mean, you've, you've I mean, people do this all the time, though. I, I mean, I, the, basically, the, the God allowing, bringing judgment by allowing the president is, like, the most public thing I can think of. Mm-hmm. But people do this all the time. I mean, a car gets bonked in the, oh, sure. in the parking lot. Just at well, individual God, levels. God's upset levels. with me. Or, 
you know, God's teaching me a lesson or God's, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Right. Again, this just calls for utmost humility. Mm-hmm. And we really, you know, if there is a takeaway, you can see God's providence throughout history, which mm-hmm. is one of the reasons it's good to look back. Mm-hmm. Really hard to see it in the present moment. And you're just guessing in the present moment. And that's what they were doing on both sides. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln was right to call him out and say, both right. cannot be right. Well, and even, even in the grand scope of history, we, uh, we were talking about uh, observing history. Only God has the, the good view of history. Right. And we can, we can take some stabs at God providentially working, and I think it went this way or this way. But just because the Civil War went the way it went does not mean that, um, that oh, this side was the one following God. Like, the, uh, injustice could have reigned after the Civil War, and that wouldn't say anything about uh, our relationship as a nation to God at all. It would just be, well, that's not good. This, right. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be sitting in a different situation, and I'm glad it went the way it went. Yes. But that doesn't say anything about... The righteous... Yeah, it doesn't say anything about people's righteousness, the participation, mm-hmm. participants' righteousness. Mm-hmm. doesn't say that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it does... It, you probably could infer that um, God, as the one who sets up kings and deposes princes, mm-hmm. uh, has done that now, because we look back and say, mm-hmm. this is the way it went yeah. down. Uh, but that's only because that's the way it went down. Right. We can't say why it went down that way. Right. You know, why God did it that way. Um, it, that's not as clear. In fact, that's one of the biggest struggles. And I again, a call for humility. Biggest struggles in the scripture is why do the righteous suffer? Mm-hmm. And why do the wicked succeed? Mm-hmm. And that happens in the current time and that happens in the past. And there is no good, you know, answer for it, really. So... Right. Uh, we just have to we have to trust the Lord and what He's revealed and um, walk by the Spirit. So, anyway, that that's uh, that's for the most part what I got out of uh, the book, the Civil War as a theological crisis and the crisis over interpretation, the the separating of slavery and race, the crisis over that, and the crisis over providence were mm. kind of the key things. The, the ability of Europeans and Canadians to see it more clearly than Americans sometimes was helpful. So anyway, that's, that's what I got. That's, that's good. And it, that's helpful. And even in addition to this, just like wh- why we even talk about history, this is uh, something uniquely devastating in our history, the Civil War. There, there's civil wars in other countries and in other histories, but I don't think like this. We have something unique that that is still the wounds are still affecting us. Um, and to to kind of read back and and just do this work, whether it's theological or uh, these different crises, and there's others. Just the general nature of it um, affect us in so many ways, and we're still working through the ramifications of this history. And it's good to keep that in mind, so that when you're just engaging in the world, okay, this. America has a different history than, than Canada well, or England. And the, th- the thing is, this is church history. Mm-hmm. What, what, what this book tells me and what I know to be true is that that pain and that history in America is also church history. Mm. And that the, the, even today, the perception of people about the Church of Jesus Christ is affected by this interpretive crisis, by this providential mm. crisis, by the yep. slave and race. So... So the, the way of Jesus in the world and the kingdom of heaven is affected by this. And again, 
calls us to be ambassadors in this um, and exiles in this country in a way mm. that is informed and thoughtful. So, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you said that. But it, I also want to add, it is church. Right. It it's church history too. That's that's really helpful. Yeah. Well, thanks for walking us through that. My pleasure. I'm grateful. Um, and hope all our listeners are as well. Uh, listeners, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to those podcasts. Go ahead and send this to someone via text or um, throw it on social media. I don't care. Uh, share it with people so that um, other people can can be learning together with us. And if you do have any questions, send them to comment at cityonahillpodcast.com. We read those, and they help guide some of our episodes as well. So we would, we would love those and welcome those. And until next time, we look forward to the next conversation. So, so.